Hello, and welcome to the Disrupting PFAS podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Hale. For this season of the podcast, our theme switches to natural materials and processes for the detection, destruction, and sequestration of PFAS. Today, I will be talking with Dr. Yana Lang of the University at Albany about phytoremediation and destruction of PFAS. So I chose this topic because it incorporates the natural process of phytoremediation to PFAS, uh, which is a desirable remediation approach. So let's learn more about this topic from one of its innovators. Welcome to the podcast, Yana. Thank you for having me. So it was uh, it was great to meet you in person recently at the Northeast Conference on the Science of PFAS. And I'm curious, what were your impressions on the state of the science of PFAS at the conference? Yeah, it was great to meet you there. So to me, the conference was very informative. So as, as you know already, there is a wide range of topics and then covering PFAS detection measurements, either quantitative, qualitative, target, or non-targeted you know, screening or analysis. So it's fairly broad and it's good to see the hard work that each state has dedicated to um, work related to PFAS that is truly impressive. In terms of state of the science, I think, yeah, it, it is good. Uh, it's good coverage and also there is depth. Um, so I think, yeah, at least as academics like me, it is very interesting. I mean, to see different perspectives from the practical and the regulatory side. Yeah, I think I would agree with you. I enjoy the conference. Um, it was nice to have a conference in um, in person. Uh, I think, you know, because of COVID, there's been a hiatus in a number of in-person conferences. And I, th- I guess one shift for me was a few years ago, we were talking about how much we don't know about PFAS. One thing that uh, an impression I had at the at the recent conference on uh, the science of PFAS was how much we do know at this point. So I think it's been a shift from how much we don't know to how much we do know about PFAS and a lot of good presentations from the academic community, uh, consultants and the regulatory community. So I enjoyed the conference and like I said, it was great to meet you there. Um, So another question, I understand that you were the inaugural chair of the Department of Environmental and Sustainable Engineering at the University at Albany, and that's a position that you currently hold. Could you please tell us about the department and your vision for it? Sure, yeah. So the Department of Environmental and Sustainable Engineering is truly unique. This is how I tell um, my friends and the folks, the students, their parents, Uh, So on one hand, this is one of the few programs in the U.S. that are not affiliated with civil engineering. Like you see civil and environmental engineering a lot of times. And secondly, this is, I would say this is only one in the nation that has, at the B.S. program level, uh, has sustainable in its program title. Uh, So the program is truly unique. We had B.S program approved by the state of New York in 2019. And then our master's and PhD programs were just approved officially by the state uh, several weeks ago. So we're all very, very excited. And our vision is to educate the next generation engineers who have a strong foundation and mindset on sustainability. 
not just like environmental engineering, solving environmental problems, but we are deeply rooted on using the sustainable concept uh, concept to identify, determine solutions that can work for long term. Well, that sounds like a very unique and interesting program. I can see how it would appeal to um, the next generation of scientists and engineers. Uh, there's a lot of talk out there about sustainability. People are starting to integrate it, but it definitely seems like it's a central theme and focus of your department and your work. So, and also congratulations on um, you know the recent progress and the further development uh, of the of the program and of the department. Um, keeping with the sustainability theme, as you mentioned, um, it's actually in the title of the department. And can you please talk a little more about um, how you incorporate sustainability into your research aims? Yeah, good question. Uh, my lab has three broad research themes. Number one is remediation of emerging contaminants, including PFAS. Number two is to convert organic waste to fuels and products. And number three is to recover critical materials and metals from electronic waste. So all of these research topics demonstrate our strong commitment to sustainability and a circular economy. Excellent. And I think that's uh, some of those aims at uh, factor into the rest of our discussion today. Uh, so let's get into PFAS. Today we'll, we will be discussing complete PFAS destruction through phytoremediation. It sounds like a very appealing option for PFAS remediation. Could you please give us an overview of the process, especially how phytoremediation works, you know, perhaps at a high level, and how the destruction aspect is achieved? Okay, great. Phytoremediation is not new. You know, we have seen phytoremediation uh, was used to remediate metal contaminated environments and maybe other organics. Uh, so for PFAS, this is re relatively new. Uh, but you know, theoretically speaking, we know plants they can uptake translocate PFAS. There are several interactions between PFAS and plants. For example, there is going to be uh, phytoimmobilization, so the, the roots can immobilize or stabilize PFAS in soil. Second one is PFAS, phyto extraction, and that is also extraction and accumulation in the roots and shoots of the plants. And there could also be photovolatilization, so that means PFAS can be uptaken and being volatilized at the leaves um, of the plants. And then there's also degradation. So degradation can happen uh, at the rhizosphere. So there's rhizosphere degradation. There's also endophytic degradation. Endophytic is weaving the plant itself. Um, and then also there's in you know, um, promoted microbial degradation at the root zone because the plant can secrete exudates, you know, organic substances that can promote growth of microbes that can enhance PFAS degradation. So phytoremediation is pretty broad, but right now, I guess, all of the researchers have been just focusing on phytoextraction and accumulation of PFAS by plants. I mean, that is reasonable because 
several years ago, we have been mainly focusing on PFAAs. And we know PFAAs, they are the end products of PFAS. They are not biodegradable. So we wanted to see how or whether these PFAAs can be uptaken by crops, vegetables, and then see whether they can affect our uh, human beings' health and then the environment. So that is very, very natural. And then these days, I there is some research on the precursors to see whether the plants or the plant soil system can degrade PFAS. Um, so yeah, that's how phyto works. I think in my personal opinion, phyto can do a lot of work. We can just treat the plants as a natural machinery. You know, just let the plants do the work, degrade PFAS, uptake PFAS. Uh, but again, this approach does have two drawbacks in my mind. Number one is this process is slow, right? Compared to chemical reactions that can happen complete in a few minutes or a few hours, we do need to allow plants to grow and that can spend several months or even longer. And the second one is how to deal with the plant biomass that is enriched with PFAS. The conventional way has been just throw them to landfills, but that is not truly environmentally sustainable. So that is what my lab has been working on in a way we think PFAS phytoremediation is promising, but we are also adding another process to make sure PFAS in plant tissues can be destroyed completely. Okay, excellent. I appreciate that description of phytoremediation. Um, I think a lot of people think of phytoremediation as you know, simply plant uptake. Um, obviously, it's you know, much more multifaceted than that from the soil stabilization, uh, things that occur in the rhizosphere, um, and, you know, and the possibility of PFAS or other contaminants even you know, you know, leaving the, the plant system or being volatilized. So thanks for that great explanation. You touched on a few things that I want to dive deeper into in our interview here, uh, particularly the types of PFAS you've been looking at, the types of plants, and also what you do at the at the end of the process. What do you do with that biomass that now has PFAS or other contaminants in it? So um, why don't we transition to that? Uh, you mentioned the perfluoroalkyl acids. I understand that some of your earlier research published in 2019 focused on the plant soil water systems and their uptake of perfluoroalkyl acids by Juncus effusus. So first of all, am I pronouncing that correctly? Is it is it Juncus effusus or is it pronounced differently? Be correct. <laughs> okay. Uh, so what is Juncus effusus? <clears throat> okay. Yeah, like you mentioned at the beginning, we focus on the PFAAs because several PFAAs, they are regulated, um, you know, either long chain or short chain. So that's why we that is the immediate need, so there is urgency, so we focused on the PFAAs. Uh, now, Juncus effusers, we did that study in October or November of 2018. So at that time in Albany, New York, uh, you know, there wasn't many choices we can look into. So Juncus effusers was green at that time because it is kind of cold tolerant. So we just went to the nursery and bought a few trays, and that's where we started. And it turns out pretty good. You know, it is a wetland species, and um, it showed a reasonable uh, number of percentage of 
PFAS removal and uptake. Okay, and you know, I read uh, in your publications that um, uptake occur more uptake occurs with longer exposure duration. Uh, so you know, the more the, the longer period of time that the plants are exposed to PFAS, there'll be more uptake. I think that makes sense and it's intuitive. One thing that I wasn't quite clear on is whether more uptake occurs with a higher concentration of PFAS or if less uptake occurs with a higher concentration of PFAS. So could you clarify that for me, please? Sure, yeah. So the uptake, I guess we need to consider several parameters. Uh, like you said, it is intuitive to perceive if you have a higher concentration of PFAS in the environment, then you're going to observe higher concentration of PFAS in the plant biomass with longer period of time. So that is true. So if you do consider the PFAS concentration and the mass of PFAS that is being translocated to the plant tissues, then yes, higher concentration of PFAS in the environment lead to higher concentration of PFAS in the plants. So that is a positive correlation. Another parameter is we call removal percentage. So you know, higher our results so far have shown that if the PFAS, if the plants are exposed to higher concentration of PFAS in the soil environment, the removal percentage, which means the percentage of PFAS in the plant tissues to the total PFAS in the soil appears to be less compared to a lower concentration. So okay. yeah, so there is like negative correlation. I think that may be related to the toxicity of PFAS to the plants. So higher concentration, there's more in the plant biomass, but percentage-wise, it is less. Okay, well, thanks for that explanation and you know I think it's a good contrast perhaps with some of our you know engineered um, PFAS destruction or removal approaches we have to take into account that um, you know these plants and vegetation are living organisms and they can be susceptible to PFAS themselves so that's an interesting point to make um, I think you just touched on that a bit, but um, but if you could talk a little more about bioaccumulation and translocation and the factors that affect those processes. Yeah, I think there are three factors that can affect plant uptake of PFAS. Number one is just plant itself. You know, some plants, they are just hyper accumulators. You know, they use lots of water and then they just uptake lots of PFAS. Uh, so that's just by nature. And then second factor is how you grow the plants. You know, the plants, some plants, if you give them the good conditions, uh, enough nutrients, enough light, then temperature and humidity, this kind of stuff, that they can grow better, right? So that is another factor. And the third factor is just PFAS themselves. You know, PFAS, they belong to the same family, but again, their structures are so different. Uh, the solubility, hydrophobicity, the biodegradability, all of them can affect the bioaccumulation and the translocation. Okay, well, let's talk about roots and shoots. How were the various PFAAs, so we're talking about the perfluoroalkyl acids, uh, how were they partitioned among the plant roots and shoots? Okay, so the partition of PFAAs between the roots and the shoots 
normally we use a term translocation factor TF to represent. Um, so TF is a ratio of PFAS concentration in the shoots to that in the roots. If TF is larger than one, that means the plant has the capability to translocate more PFAS to the shoots versus the roots. And again, that translocation is highly dependent on several factors, you know, the plant species, the soil properties, and then the PFAS structure themselves. We have seen the PFCAs can lead to higher TF compared to PFSAs because PFSAs tend to bind and sorb to soil particles. And again, within each group, PFCAs and PFSAs, there is a chain length effect. Shorter chains, we, we see higher concentration in the shoots, and then the longer chains, we saw lower TF. Okay, so it sounds like you know, there's a difference between chain length and the carboxylates and sulfonates, just like we see migrating through an aquifer or migrating through a filtration medium like granular activated carbon. Uh, the shorter chains will translocate um, faster or further um, than the longer chains and the carboxylates uh, the same. They will um, they'll translocate more. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, you are okay. absolutely correct. So the PFAS chemistry play plays an important role okay. of this fate and transport. Yeah, it's interesting to see how consistent you know some of these factors are, whether whatever medium you're in, from a plant to the soil to um, a treatment system. So that's interesting. Um, let's see. What effect do PFAS and soil have on the bacterial communities, and how is that significant? Okay. So the microbial communities, they are everywhere. You know, they are in soil sediment in surface water, groundwater. So they are everywhere and they are at the bottom of the ecosystem. We don't see them, but again, they do a lot of beneficial work for the whole ecosystem. And our studies have shown that PFAS can affect the composition, structure, diversity of the microbial communities. Again, that is dependent on individual PFAS and their concentrations. And for example, we look at the nitrogen cycle. You know, microbes are responsible for carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur cycles. So specific to the nitrogen cycle, we looked at nitrification and denitrification. Both of these can be affected by PFAS. So imagine if nitrogen cycle is affected, you know, nitrogen cycle that is you know ammonia fixation, and then from nitride to nitrate, and then from nitrate to nitrogen. So if this cycle is affected, it may affect the agricultural practice, like how fertilizers are applied. Um, yeah, so there is a lot of consequences we may have to consider, you know, impact from PFAS. I, I looked at a poster you had at the recent Northeast Conference on the Science of PFAS, and I believe that's uh, what the poster covered as well, some of these nitrogen processes and how it affected bacteria, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think that's important uh, information because, you know, a lot of our scientific community, the regulated community is focused on, of course, the, the health effects of PFAS, 
um, how PFAS behaves in the environment, you know, how it moves through various media. But I'm not sure everyone, you know, appreciates that, you know, it can affect um, soil microbes and things like, you know, nitrogen processes that affect, you know, crops, agriculture, and other vegetation. So that's a great uh, perspective to bring here to the podcast. Appreciate that. Um, so let's switch gears a bit. We've been talking about the perfluoroalkyl acids. So these are the, you know, fully fluorinated PFAS that we're familiar with, such as PFOS and PFOA. Um, you know, but attention is turning more to other types of PFAS. And I note that more recently, you and your colleagues have studied plant uptake in the ether PFAS by the species Carex camosa. And so ether PFAS includes certain replacement PFAS that we we know by the names of Gen X, Adana, uh, F53B, and others. So could you, um, how do these ether PFAS differ from the perfluoroalkyl acids? Okay, yeah, that is a good question. And so I guess first, the commonality between PFAAs and then the ether PFAS they can all be uptaken by plants, so there's no surprise there. And But in that study, we didn't compare the uptake of PFAAs and then the ether PFAS by Keras Comsa. Uh, so we only focused on the five ether PFAS in that study. But again, because of the difference in chemistry among the five, we did see different uptake, different fractionation in the soil. Okay, so let's talk about the plants a bit. What is Carex camosa and how does that differ from Juncus effusus? Okay, so they are both wetland species, but compared to Juncus effusus, Carex uh, camosa is more cold tolerant. Then in one study it reported Carex camosa is the best uh, cold tolerant wetland species. So that is the reason we targeted this one. And then the rationale is to see whether phytoremediation works in the cold winter times in the Northeast. Okay, that that triggers another thought of mine in wondering if maybe getting ahead of things a bit, but have you taken into account or will you be looking at um, how climate change could factor into um, which species might be effective at certain latitudes and how that could change over time? Yeah, that is a very big topic. Uh, yeah, I think climate change may affect lots of things, like how plants grow, their growing season, and then lots of other things. Uh, but yeah, it would be very interesting to see that effect. You know, I know some researchers, they have tested, you know, assuming a higher global temperature and how that will affect agricultural crops and other plant species. Uh, yeah, that's some, certainly something we can do later. Okay. Uh, a little more into the technical details. How does solubility and partitioning of these ether PFAS and soil affect uptake? I think theoretically speaking, the solubility of PFAS can affect a lot uh, with respect to their location in the soil plant system. Now, for the five ether PFAS we studied, I don't think we have solubility data for any of them. Gene X maybe, but for the others, I don't think we have the data available. I could be wrong though. Um, but again, definitely we can see the trend of hydrophobicity related to the uptake. For example, F53B 
is the most hydrophobic among the five. So we see F53D was primarily associated with plant roots, not much in the shoots. And then the other ether PFAS, you know, their, their TF, the translocation factor, they were all larger than one. That means concentration in the shoes were larger than those in the roots. Okay. What are the what's the significance or implications of accumulation in the roots versus accumulation in the shoots when it comes to the efficacy of phytoremediation? I assume more translocation is better, but um, how significant uh, is that uptake into the shoots when it comes to the practical implementation of phytoremediation? Well, I think the end goal of phytoremediation is to use plants to uptake PFAS from the environment. And then so you have, ideally, you have these contaminants end up in the above-ground plant tissues. And then you can harvest the above-ground plant biomass and send somewhere, dispose it in some way. And then you can remove these contaminants from the site. I think that is the end goal. So if we want to achieve that goal, then we would we would really much prefer that the contaminants can trans, can be translocated or moved to the plant shoots, right? Instead okay. of staying at the roots. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, is there still some benefit though, even if it's only getting taken up in the roots? Well, let me see, it depends on how easy to remove the roots from the site. If you can re remove the roots easily, then you can still treat the roots that is enriched by PFAS in some ways. But if the roots, you know, some roots can be very extensive. If it's hard to remove, then the PFAS, they are accumulated in the roots. If they are, if they are not removed, then they just stay there, right? Is there any... I assume there might be an uptake capacity. So even if it's you know some of the um, the less mobile PFAS, your PFOS, your F53B, you know that might be getting taken up into the roots. I still think that could be beneficial, although it would be more desirable to remove them from the system altogether. But is there an uptake capacity in the roots that um, they could only take up so many so much massive PFAS? Well, yeah, that is a good question. So, I mean, if, for example, the hydrophobic PFAS, PFOS, or F53B can be stabilized by the roots and just stay there, not move to other places, other locations, I guess that is good, right? Even though they are not in the shoes, if they can be stable in the roots, I mean, that could be a solution. Um, I'm not sure there is a capacity or limit of root, either absorption or uptake, because the roots, if the plant is growing healthy, then they just keep on growing, right? The roots will become deeper and just more root tissues. So I'm thinking, yeah, so the roots can, it's, it's going to be a continuous process. But if the plants die, then, you know, the roots is not going to be functional. The PFAS either could stay there or maybe dissociate from the plant roots and be mobilized to other places. Okay, again, that's an interesting con contrast with some of our more um, engineered physical remediation systems where you might have a filtration medium that does have a sorptive capacity, but it doesn't keep growing on its own like the roots might. So that's an interesting um, contrast. 
and I'm really appreciating uh, talking about, again, this natu these natural processes of phytoremediation. So we've been talking about phyto and uh, how it can be applied to remediation, but this makes me think about implications for food crops, um, and there's growing interest on the effect of PFAS on food crops. What are the implications of PFAS uptake uh, via these plant soil water systems on food crops? Is that something you can speak to? Yeah, sure. I think that is the origin or, you know, the start of looking at PFAS in vegetables, in crops. I mean, at the way beginning, that's what researchers worked on, just considering because PFAS are toxic. I mean, if these chemicals end up in the food we eat, then that is going to be terrible, right? So that is a start of looking at plant uptake. And then my lab started from a different angle is to use plant for uptake and phytoremediation. So I think, yeah, still um, studying PFAS in food crops, vegetables is still very, very important because we have been looking at a very, very small, tiny subset of PFAS and how they can be uptaken by crops and vegetables and fruits. There is lots of PFAS out there and we don't know how to study at this point. And then if they end up in the food we eat, then we have to consider them seriously, like how to prevent that entry into the food chain. Okay, thank you for that explanation. So to this point, we've been focused on the phytoremediation. We've been talking about uptake processes and how uh, PFAS or other contaminants could be uptaken into uh, the plants, how they could be translocated from the roots to the shoots. Um, earlier in our conversation, you talked about you know, the importance of, I guess you would say, harvesting, um, you know, the biomass, the leafy material that has the PFAS in it, and then somehow disposing of it. And I think you made a good point that putting that in a landfill isn't really a sustainable solution. So I want to talk next about, okay, what's the final step here? In your presentation at the recent Northeast Conference on the Science of PFAS was titled, Revisiting sludge pretreatment can thermal hydrolysis and ultrasonic destruction destruct PFAS. So, can these or other destructive technologies be applied to destroy PFAS um, in the plant biomass, or are there other options? Okay, we haven't tested ultrasonication toward destructing PFAS in plant biomass yet. Um, the thermal hydrolysis, depending on the temperature we use, yeah, we do see PFAS can be destroyed uh, in the plant biomass. So PFOS is more recalcitrant compared to PFOA, but with the addition of a chemical or reagent, we did observe 100% degradation or removal of PFOS. So again, we tested only a few PFAAs. There are lots of chemicals we haven't tested yet, but I do see there is a great potential for using this hydrothermal liquefaction to destroy PFAS in plant biomass. Okay, are there other destructive technologies that you're looking at or that we should be looking at, or do you think it's the, the hydrothermal destructive processes um, that will be most effective? Well, so there are a lot, as you know already, lots of techniques have looked at how they can destroy, degrade PFAS, uh, but that is in different environmental matrices, either water, 
or soil or sediment or groundwater. Uh, so in terms of plant biomass, I haven't read any publications you know, to destroy PFAS in this harvested plant biomass. I think some other processes may work. Uh, pyrolysis that is conducted at a higher temperature than liquefaction may have the potential to degrade PFAS. Uh, but again, there is a pressure difference between pyrolysis and then liquefaction. So in terms of liquefaction, you know, the subcritical water can act as a reagent, uh, kind of a catalyst to facilitate and participate in different reactions. And that is absent in pyrolysis. So I think it remains to be tested and seen like whether other thermochemical processes can destroy PFAS in plant biomass. Okay. So earlier in our discussion, you made the point that um you know, phytoremediation, you know, one possible drawback is just the rate at which it works. It's a little slower than maybe some of our physical engineered systems. And it looks like you're making good progress and the scientific community is making good progress towards um, destructive processes that could be coupled with phytoremediation for a complete solution. Could you please talk about the practicability and scalability of you know, implementing phytoremediation, you know, with an ultimate destructive process to actually bring this to practice to the remediation field. Okay, yeah. So phytoremediation, like I mentioned, it is natural, it is green, but it is slow. So the combination of a green, scalable, scalable and sustainable approach with a fast thermochemical process I mean, we can potentially degrade all of the PFAS in the biomass. Um, so in my mind, this approach is highly practical. So think about you have a PFAS contaminated site. It's not very urgent or it's not heavily contaminated by PFAS. So you have the luxury or you have the time to allow the plants to grow and then just slowly remove PFAS from the soil. So in that case, yeah, it is durable. And then once you have this above ground plant biomass harvested, collected, then you know we can go to the next step to do the liquefaction to destroy PFAS completely. So it is scalable, it is practical, but we do need to realize that liquefaction is not inexpensive. We need to use these high temperature, high pressure reactors. And even though there are some have been used at pirate skills, but I haven't seen commercial skills yet. Um, so we do need to consider the overall cost, especially the liquefaction part. Great point. I think uh, we certainly need to appreciate that aspect of it. For me, um, you know, the, the scalability seems to be an upside to fighter remediation. Um, just the ability to, um, you know, the amount of area you can cover with vegetation uh, that could at least uptake and translocate uh, PFAS is definitely a, a benefit and a positive factor for phytoremediation. But as you point out, I think we need to appreciate, um, you know, coupling that with the destructive process. Um, you know, that's promising and for ultimate disposition. Um, 
but you know, there's definitely a cost associated with that. So that wraps up this episode of the Disrupting PFAS podcast. Thank you to Dr. Yana Lang of the University at Albany for joining us today. I'm your host, Jeff Hale, reminding you to never say forever.